Podmode Podcast with Andy Case and special guest. Hello and welcome to the Bonmo Podcast. This week, Tom Crowley is answering the questions while I sit and wonder why I've wasted my life not doing comedy. And with that, over to Tom. Hello. Well, a lot of people would say, Andy, that uh, doing comedy is wasting your life, but uh, <laughs> I'll introduce myself. Meanwhile, my name is Tom Crowley. I'm a writer, an actor and a comedian. I always describe myself that. There's also other stuff I've done, like graphic design and cartoons and <laughs> other sort of miscellaneous <laughs> things that have kept the wall from the door over the years. But that's me, basically. Main things about me are that I'm a writer, an actor and some kind of comedian. Now, uh, to tell you a bit more about myself. It's too harsh on yourself. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. What you, I, I think uh, I think I <laughs> I try my best at those things. Should we say that? Let's I try my very best at being a writer, an actor, and a comedian. Fair enough. Um, as for my kind of personal, you know, my uh, who, what, where about me and my sort of um, Tinder profile details, uh, I would say uh, my favorite song. Do you know what? I've got a few favorite songs. Sometimes. It's often stuff from the 70s or 80s that I've kind of heard in, you know, on radio stations or in movies and stuff for a while, and then it'll suddenly click. And the two big ones from recently that I can think of are uh, Barracuda by Heart and uh, great, yeah, the face and listen to the face Andy's making sums it up quite well a sort of uh, ecstasy at remembering the song Barracuda. Yeah. Uh, and also, Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. Oh. I just uh, listened to that over and over again for a while. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's um, not 80s, I will admit. I went to give blood last week, just putting that in there to show what oh. a great guy I am. Well done, me. Yeah, you're a good person, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> they uh, they had 90s radio on, and I was mm. I was just sat there going, I remember, I had, obviously I hadn't clocked it was 90s radio, I just heard the songs going, I remember buying that single, I remember buying that single. Then part of your brain yeah. goes, oh, yeah, that was 91, wasn't it? And you're going, 91, yeah, that was... Uh, Oh God! <laughs> oh God! <what? laughs> that was over thirty years. That's not right. That is not right. I remember there was a tweet that did the rounds, wasn't it? Which was like, uh, "How come 1980 is both 20 years ago and 40 years ago?" Yes. Yeah, it's true. That doesn't make sense. It's horrifying. Uh, Song-wise, that'll be that's me. Now, uh, yeah. so book is another category that uh, that you'd like to hear from me about. And um, I, a sort of secret about me is I actually don't spend enough time reading. I'm a terrible illiterate. I don't spend enough of my leisure time reading. I think because being a writer, I'm like Garth Marenghi. I've I've read uh, I've written more books than I've read. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, that's not quite true. But there's I mean there's a bunch of books that really meant a lot to me. Uh, a Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick is oh, probably yeah. an enduring favorite, all time favorite. Um, oh gosh, I mean it's so long since I read it as well. But yeah, I mean I tend to find myself reading more comics and also short stories. I love. I recently read uh, a collection. Well, it was sort of a Part short stories and part one coherent whole uh, called The Haunted Book, which is by Jeremy Dyson from The League of Gentlemen, which I recommend to anyone oh, who wow. likes horror or ghost stories. It's brilliant. It's like you're reading a book of short stories, but then the book itself becomes haunted. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> but, you know, that's the best way to sell it. And it's it's formally inventive in a way that books aren't often in it. Fantastic. Oh, well, I'm, I'm um, that. That, sound, that sounds good. I, I'm... I don't, like you, I don't read as much as I should, but that sounds like yeah. something I definitely should put the effort in for, so. Oh, defo. I mean, it's it's just a joy to read as well. Like, as I say, I think it's also, uh, it, it's partly that, you know, if I have time to myself, just me on my own, which is like reading time, I'll almost certainly be playing a video game <laughs> because it's such, <laughs> it's the most indulgent way to spend your time. Uh, and I don't play games with other people or anything. I just play single player. Th- I've been, I think, I've been playing Zelda Tears of the Kingdom for about nine months at this point, uh, with every <laughs> bit of private time that I have. And um, 
It's still not, still not finished, but uh, absolutely love it. But that that's because that's such a kind of a focused and uh, self-indulgent thing to do that I sort of find that it's it's quite restorative in that way. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, reading also gives me a similar amount of joy, but I suppose in my head I go, well, I'll sling a book in my bag and I'll read it on the train or whatever, and I just, I just don't, I'm terrible. But, I, you know, I still try to make time for it now and then. I just get through books very slowly. Fair enough, um, fair yeah. enough. You're a busy mm. man. Now, films, though, that's a lot harder, and it's very difficult. Well, I say it's difficult to choose a f- one favourite film. It isn't. It's a matter of life and death. But uh, if you wanted me to name, like, 400 runners-up second places, then I definitely could. Mm. Uh, and that would include things like The Stone Tape, uh, also uh, The Apartment by Billy Wilder, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. There's a million that I could put in there as honourable mentions. But number one, I think unequivocally is a matter of life and death. Yeah, good choice. That is a good choice. Mm. As I say, this, you don't necessarily just have to pick the one, and sometimes that changes from month to month, so that's absolutely... I can do, yeah. But, but good choice, I think, and if people haven't seen that, they definitely should check it out. So, Should I describe a matter of life and death, just yeah, for anybody sure. who listens yes, to this? I do. Briefly, so without spoilers. A, <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Yeah, Well, I mean, the trouble is, like, the opening five minutes are like a spoiler, aren't they? Spoiler, <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but it's also what hooks you. So A Matter of Life and Death is a, a film, it's it's basically a propaganda film, and it was designed by the creators, um, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, uh, two of Britain's greatest ever filmmakers and who were, you know, real superstars of production at the time. Uh, to It was in, intended to foster better relationships between British people and all the Yanks that were coming over and uh, coming over here oversexed and overpaid. And uh, essentially, it's a love story between a British airman and a female American radio operator. And the thing about this film that everyone talks about because it is the best thing in the world is the opening scene. And in the opening scene, uh, a doomed Lancaster bomber plane that's been shot down by the Germans and is about to crash in the uh, channel, uh, the pilot, who has stayed behind because there weren't enough parachutes left, he's got all of the rest of his crew to bail out. One of his uh, you know, co-pilots, one of his bomber crew, is dead. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he basically rings in to whoever he can reach to sort of put his house in order before he dies. Yeah. And in the space between uh, the radio operator picking up the call and the bomber uh, signing off, they fall in love with each other, essentially, mm. across this very short conversation. And it's, it's maybe the best written scene of dialogue of any film ever... I'm trying to think of any possible challenges to that, and I don't think there are any. <laughs> but you know, it's—I'm sure there's a hot contenders, but I can't—I can't think of a better opening scene to any film. And I, yes, I'm including Up, which is also excellent. But you know, <laughs> the opening five minutes of Up, the opening five minutes of um, Matter of Life and Death, of a par, and I think Matter of Life and Death takes the cake. But also, I think that's to do it a disservice because I think one thing that's so, as a writer, the thing I envy about A Matter of Life and Death is it gives itself such a giant high concept core premise (laughs) and it's only rewarding. It never gets bogged down by this incredibly high concept which I won't go into too much because it might give too much away and too much spoil the magic. But some some of the premise, you go, in the hands of a a more cack-handed writer or director, it could feel like this is all getting a bit too complicated and there's questions of like justice and the afterlife and you know, what constitutes, you know, a right to live and, you know, like, I don't know. It's so much, so, you know, who who deserves a second chance, stuff like that. And I think, um, and I just think that so many people, I think, could very easily have to go like, oh, we can't have this bit in it as well. That's just going to confuse it. Like, what? And then, uh, who's this French revolutionary guy? Is that, do we need him? It's like, but it's just so deftly and effortlessly done. It's, yeah. it's just, it's a perfect film to my mind. 
No, I, I, I agree. It is superb film. And if you haven't seen it, you definitely should see it. Um, and I think to your point of how well it was structured and how well they kept mm. not getting bogged down, I, I won't name them, but I can think of quite a few films that were in a similar vein that did get bogged mm. down, did get overcomplicated. Um, Do you mean films that are like kind of dealing with the, the admin of the afterlife? Yeah. Right, you know, and it, you mean R.I.P.D. Rest in peace, uh, department. Well, I wasn't going to mention I've not seen that, but uh, yeah, I, I imagine it's not quite as uh, neat and deft as uh, Matter of Life and Death. No, and it's uh, yeah, it's as you say, is is the getting bogged down and then you sort of just losing the will, the interest, I suppose, because it's like mm. you are, yeah, you are really, really labouring on this, <laughs> you know, but. Yeah, struggling to make your case uh, in terms of like, uh, yeah, if you're if you're sort of trying to set the rules up and you have to work too hard to do that, I mean that's so often that with with any, especially sort of supernatural or um, otherwise, you know, not of this world films, some of the hardest stuff to do, but then also anything with a sort of insular world all of its own, like spies or murder mysteries or whatever. So so much of it is like. Here are the rules of this. If this, like, I think uh, there's a, in the film Inception, there's a bit where literally they wheel out a flip chart and some, I forget which character it is, but some, I think it's Michael Caine or someone. Somebody basically says, here's how this works. We do this and then this. And if we do this, that means this is happening. Unless this happens, we hope that doesn't happen, that will happen. (laughs) And then as long as we do this, when that happens, then it'll be fine. And then that happens in the film. And you do kind of, I, I was going, you just told me what was going to happen. <laughs> like, you know, they set off on the mission and you go, but you just you just said, you know, I know what's going to happen because that's going to happen. And then yeah. that's going to happen. You just said that. And that that sort of thing, I think, I don't know, it reads a little, reads a little clumsy to me. And I think that the, the ease with which they can do that. In, I mean, there's loads of films that do it brilliantly. And I think yeah. the ease of A Matter of Life and Death is, yeah, just uh, exemplary. Yeah, I yeah I I agree. I think if you as I say if you haven't seen it, find it. It's going to be something. Yeah. You won't regret the what hour and forty minutes you spend watching it. There's no, there's no not. way. No, no, no. So, moving on, uh, the first comedian sketch that made me laugh. John, you know, I think about this a lot now. The first real show when I was young that really grabbed me and made me go, oh, I love comedy. Yeah, was a sketch show which I think isn't talked about enough now these days, called Goodness Gracious Me. Oh, wow. Which, yeah. uh, if listeners don't remember it, it was like the first, maybe not the first, but it was like certainly one of the earliest all South Asian British comedy shows. Yeah. So, like, it's not just about being South Asian. It's about specifically being British South Asian and, and either being first generation, being a sort of, you know, early 20th century immigrant who's struggled to get used to life in, in England or, or in yeah. the rest of Britain. But also about being the children of those uh, immigrants, as I think most of the cast would have been, like would be sort of second generation. And uh, what I often think about this because, you know, people I'm sure at the time were going, oh, yeah, sure, I'm sure it's very funny if, if you're Indian. But like I was a little white kid growing up in North London and I had Indian friends at school and stuff, but like I didn't have a particular exposure to that culture, not in any depth, except through goodness gracious me. And the reason that I picked up, you know, what chuddies means and, you know, what the, why are there suitcases on top of the wardrobe? You know, all that stuff. The reason I did the mental work to interpret the meaning of all these comedy references was because the jokes were good enough and the performers were so yeah. charismatic. Yeah. So even if it required a bit of extra... So, and why I think about this so much is quite often I think there's a... 
there's a fear from uh, producers and money people and things like that that if people feel alienated or uh, that they have to do some work for even a second, they'll switch off. Yes. Like, I, you know, without going into details, like I, know, I know somebody who they were putting together a pilot for a, a sketch thing and they had a character and it was supposed to be for BBC Three. Yeah. And they had a character that they'd done for a long time on stage who was a film noir sort of uh, femme fatale kind of... Um, uh, is it like Kim Novak or... Uh, what am I, Double Indemnity, who am I thinking of? Um, oh, um... Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and her name, Fred McBarbara Stanwyck. That's who I'm Barbara thinking of. Fred yes, sorry, Barbara. sorry, Barbara. Sort of that, that kind of fast-talking, you know, noir lady. Yeah. And um, and the producer said, yeah, we just don't think the BBC Three audience knows what um, film noir is. <laughs> so they, they were like, advised uh, to take it out. And it was like, well, but, you know, I and so I often think about the fact that when I was growing up, I loved uh, I loved film noir stuff, and that was sort of you know some of the first grown ups films I really got into were Humphrey Bogart and um, uh, Dick Powell in Farewell My Lovely and, and all that kind of golden age stuff. I loved it at Casablanca, obviously, and I knew I learnt what film noir was and what a trench coated detective was yes. from a Saturday morning cartoon called Jim Henson's Dog City, uh, and that was a really interesting mixed media show. Do you remember that? I don't actually. I'm a bit disappointed. That I don't. I don't. I'm gonna to have to look that. Well, up. look it up because it's. I don't think there's that much that survives of it, but it's interesting. Okay. And it it's a thing where it's about an animator called Elliot who is a puppet dog, and it's all Muppets. You know, it's all yeah, um, yeah. live action puppets. And uh, he lives in a rundown apartment building, uh, and he, you know, in sort of using cartoon logic, he single handedly animates a TV cartoon. Yeah, like like you do in real life. Like you do uh, in real called life, yeah. Dog City. Yeah, and and he's writing. He's sort of single handedly writing and drawing the adventures of Ace Hart, Private Eye, who is a and two D animated dog who is going through uh, these film noir adventures in the two dimensional animated world. However, the sort of twist. I mean, as if there aren't enough twists already in the premise, but the big twist is Ace Hart is alive and can talk to the animator, like Daffy Duck in Duck and Muck. And it's it works so well because you have this complicity between them where he's going, oh, please, you don't have to have there be this many gangsters. And he's like, no, it's about stakes, Ace. It's, you know, it's about keeping people excited. It's like, yeah, but I'll be excited with two or three. I mean, 20 guys beating me up. Do we have to do this? <laughs> and like, I, I had never seen a film noir. I'm sure I had seen an advert or another cartoon yeah. or something which had, you know, stark black and white and, and hat, fedora hats and trench coats and all that. I didn't know what film noir was, and I wouldn't watch one, an actual source text of it, for another 10 years or something. Yeah. But, I, but you, can, you, you learn about these things through those early exposures to these cultural touchstones, and that's kind of how that kind of shared language of comedy, but also just of, you know, touchstones and, and, and references in general. So, like, you know, for me, I had an understanding of what it was to kind of be a slightly immature, uh, you know, <laughs> working class or possibly like lower middle class uh, Asian kid growing up in London because of uh, the Bangra muffins, <laughs> in goodness gracious me, because they talked about the pressures they were under from their parents. And yeah, and uh, it's brilliant jokes. Like, here's, here's one. This is a perfect one. There's a sketch where the Bangra muffins, who were Sanjeev Bhaskar and Gulvin de Geer, naming people that are like still gods to me to this day (laughs) and uh, they they just had these duologues where they would just go on about like the girls they fancied or the things they wanted to do in life businesses they wanted to start and that was there was a running character they were the ones who uh coined the catchphrase kiss my chuddies Mm. uh and they they were they're chatting at one point and sanjeev baskar's character is uh, espousing the belief that as the cultural melting pot continues 
uh, if you put all of the, if you mash up, you know, if you get a load of crayons and mash them up, it all comes out brown. Uh, and so therefore he believes that in the melting pot, if um, people keep sort of uh, breeding uh, between different uh, backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, eventually everybody will be brown. Yeah. And, uh, and Corvinda Gear's character says, no, 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 because if everyone is brown, who can I smoke in front of without my mum finding out? <laughs> and I didn't have that reference as a kid. You know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't understand this yeah. complicity between all kind of Asian parents that if you, you know, if someone catches you outside a shop smoking, your mum will find out by that evening. I didn't have that kind of upbringing and I didn't have that sort of um, t- cultural touchstone, but they gave it to me. And I think that's so such a huge, important part of like, this is a real tangent here, but it's such an important part of um, telly and, and radio and, and all broadcasting is, and comedy in general is, is often like making the specific seem more relatable just by doing it, you know, with conviction. Yeah. And I think that if you get, you start to worry too much about like, oh no, kids, kids won't know um, who Art Malik is, <laughs> then you don't get all those jokes. You know, you don't, you don't get that exposure to this richer world of, of culture. And that's kind of what, that's that richer world of culture is what I got into this bloody business to explore and find out about, you know, cause I was yeah. so inspired by those early uh, touchstones. I think you, right. So that's going to be the whole podcast now. Uh, is that the end of? Uh, <laughs> yes, that's. Thank you so much. Twenty minutes answer to that question. So that's the end, right? Okay. Sorry. Yes. I, uh, sorry. No. Uh, first, pick up, just briefly pick up the point about the film noir. And it's staggered that that yeah. point was made, considering film noir keeps just being reworked and coming back to life every five, ten years. There's a yeah. film, isn't there? It just people love it. People love the dynamic of what film noir is, and it can. It's, yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed they say no one will know what it is. Anyway, my my lasting memory of Goodness Gracious Me really was instantly was the uh, how they played so expertly with the lazy stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, I just, I second, I saw the first, I don't suppose it was the first sketch, but that's how I've edited it in my memory. Mm. But, uh, yeah, the second they did that sort of lazy stereotype, comedy sketch you're like oh this is genius this, this yeah that's for the inversion of, yeah. as well like the i think genuine I, I, the sketch people always talk about is going for an english which yeah. is where a bunch of like young yeah. south asian yeah. people in london go out for an english yeah like much as you know white young men and women would go for a curry for an indian and it's all the things all the sort of slightly offensive lazy things that <laughs> white people say yeah. when they go to a curry house were being said about British food by, you know, English food uh, by Asian people. And it's such a perfect, it's one, it's it's that thing of, there's a theory of sketches, which is a normal thing with one thing changed, you know. And so in in this case, it's, it's some people going for an Indian. No, they're not. They're going for an English. Yeah. And then it's just every joke that you can get out of that yeah. is, you know, is the body of the entire sketch. That's how it goes. Yeah. And um, so... I was. Everyone goes on about that sketch. It's one of the kind of greatest of all time, and it's yeah. the one that they're best remembered for. I, I might be wrong about this. I'm pretty sure it's the first sketch in episode one of the show. Like, I don't know if that's true, but like, it, it's. I remember watching the series and going, "Is it this early?" <laughs> like the TV version. There was a radio version too, which I actually yes. haven't heard all of. But um, yeah, but it was. It was certainly very. Early. I went. This is in episode one. Yeah. Like it's. It's the. They nailed it straight away. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I love the fact as well that yeah everyone was behind it and allowed it to breathe and exist and yeah. be and and because there's yeah I think you you'll know as well as I do there there's so many mountains to climb to even get to mm. having a discussion with something that may happen possibly in the future possibly or not yeah but, and it and it's 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 harder now I think that mm. so uh, there was a brilliant talk uh, at the BFI by the the lineup plus. Um, 
Uh, so, so the the original cast of Goodness Gracious Me, um, Sanjeev Baskar, Nina Wadia, Mira Sayal, and Corvin de Geer mm-hmm. were there, uh, uh, along with the producer and also a writer who used to work on The Real McCoy, which was had more had a more generally sort of um, urban sort of multicultural focus. So it's mainly yeah. black cast and some Mira Sayal started out in that as well. And so, oh, did you know, she was talking about the both. So they aired an episode of Goodness Gracious Me and one of The Real McCoy, and then they talked about how it all happened. And so, I've got it, sorry, just uh, trying to remember her name. So the producer, Anil Gupta, who mm-hmm. uh, got Goodness Gracious Me on the air, he talked about how, basically how close it came to not happening. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what happened was, uh, there was a, they, they put together a stage version, which I think was at like Riverside Studios in Hammersmith or something, like somewhere that's still going. Yeah. And they, they did a stage version, essentially to go, look, just let us do this. <laughs> and here it is finished. Here's like a pilot being done in front of an audience and they're laughing. Yeah. And at like the 11th hour, the BBC said, oh, our guy can't come anymore. So they did this show, you know, with, with no one there. And they were going, oh, well, this is a complete waste of time then. Like, we're, we're just doing a show for no one. We're not, no one who's in charge of making these decisions will be there. <laughs> but luckily, I think it was like some, somebody who was a friend had brought a camera because they just had it with them for us, another thing they were doing that day. Wow. And they just set it up and went, oh, well, we'll, we'll film it and get it off to him. <laughs> and I think it was also a bit like, Oh, the battery's almost dead. Oh no! <laughs> they had to run out and buy another camera battery to make sure they could actually oh, tape the whole show. And that's it. Was down to that. It was down to like so many and, and so many shows that, especially more idiosyncratic ones like that, that are a bit unconventional or trailblazing. So often you find that there's this incredibly precarious yes. series of um, uh, just accidental happenings that have led to them actually happening. Mm. And I think that's important for everyone to bear in mind who's trying to pitch stuff because so often you go, oh well if what I'm doing was really good, then it would have been made by now. And you go, no, <laughs> there are five million little infinitesimal decisions that can happen or not happen Yes, uh, that will mean that it either does or doesn't get made. And like, there's, you can't really control. Let's, let's say there's a hundred decisions that go into whether that happens. 99 of them you have no control over. Yeah. And the 1% is like who you send it to and if it's any good. <laughs> that, you know, the 99, you don't know. Somebody lost an email Someone left that job that day. Like, you know, someone was in a bad mood when they read it and didn't think it was as good as it is, you know. And it, it's, you, you can't take that stuff personally. It's, it drives you mad, but, like, you, you can't read any logic into it most of the time because there's so many factors you don't know about involved. Yeah. Oh, 100%. There's, there's, there's endless stories in, because, oh, as you know, I work more on scripts, but there's endless stories on mm. people who've, even option scripts, they've even got to the point where they've said, here's, here's yeah. a small bag of money for your script. And they're like, hooray, it's off to Hollywood to be made, you know. And then nothing mm. happens for five years, ten years, whatever, then maybe it gets picked off the pile. And yeah, yeah. Made, but then it's not made as it was originally written. And then there's a whole thing about, well, this isn't really the script I wrote. And it's like, yes, but you no longer have control because you've sold the script so they can book yeah. it however they want. And there's just a whole sea of... Uh, even when it gets made, because there's obviously um, one of the conversations that comes up quite a lot is where people are not sweet on a film, let's say. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of times saying, well, obviously the writing's awful or, or the dialogue's awful or the, yeah, there's, there's, there's problems with continuity or, or whatever it's like. But there's potential that the original script was perfect. There's potential that the original script oh, yeah. was perfectly paced, had continuity, had the right callbacks, had the right character arcs, had the right character, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Every, every, everything you can do to try and make it as, as together as it can be but, has but been during done. During the yeah. production, decisions were made about lose that scene, we need to add this bit in. 
like you say, we, we need to add perhaps a bit more whiteboards to explain, you know, let's telegraph some more stuff. The, the, mm. the writer thought, we don't need to telegraph it, audiences are intelligent. Yes, but just in case. We're just yeah, a yeah. massive I mean, that's... edition dump for no reason halfway through the film. And it's not what was written, but at least it got made, I think. Mm. At least it actually got made, um, good or bad. A film I saw recently, which I really loved, and it was one of those ones where you go, "Oh, this is you know, this is why you grind away for years and years and years, and like have those experiences where you're yeah. not in control yeah. and things get messed around and taken away from you. It's so that you can eventually have this degree of control. And it was um, Alex Garland's Men. Oh yeah, uh, which was have you seen that? Not yet. No, it's on my list. But not yet. It's really good. I wondered if it might be too abstract for me, but I think it it it, it backs up its ideas, so to speak. Uh, no. Again, without giving anything away. But it's incredible. It's a folk horror, basically, but kind of. It's like a social, <laughs> social observation, satirical folk horror about yeah. men and women and men's feelings towards women, and um, which which sounds incredibly arch, but it's really gettable <laughs> and it, it flows beautifully. Yeah. And. You know, Alex Garland, if you spoke to him, he might say, oh, it was horrible. We had such trouble getting the money together and the studio kept asking me to do another cut or whatever. But a part of me goes, well, you got to make this incredibly odd, you know, gross, (laughs) uh, scary film that kind of feels like it's about, you know, his own male self-loathing. It feels like it's him examining his own interactions with women over the years. And it it feels kind of like, in the best way, like one of those 70s films. I was just uh, listening to someone else talking about Don't Look Now recently. and, And actually one of the few films I can think of that has that same sort of stillness and tension is Men. Mm. And uh, I just really enjoyed it. And like, but it, it, and it, I think you, it's that thing of he's had to do a lot more work because he's directing his own stuff and because he's producing it. And, you know, he's got a hand in the mechanics of production. And I think the reason that you drive yourself mad and, and break your back, like working for years and years and years to become somebody who is trusted with that degree of responsibility is so that you can then make something as, as completely unique and, you know, at danger of being a disaster as a yes. film like that, you know. And I bet you a lot of people watched it and said, like, didn't get that at all, hated it. I don't know how much money it made either. Like, it might have been an absolute bomb for, um, is it Annapurna or A24 or whatever that studio's called. But anyway, they they might go, never work with him again. But what I do know is that I saw this film that, that couldn't have seemed less likely of a pitch, <laughs> less likely of a, a film to get past, you know, uh, demographic research and focus groups. Like, it's, it's yeah, but it's great. It's well worth watching. Yeah, I I will keep that on the list. Yes, I just haven't mm. got round to that one, but but thank you because I, I want to watch it more now. So, yeah, no, it's it's worth a try. And like again, it's I mean I'm a big fan of short films as well. If a film's over an hour and forty five minutes, it's really got to work hard to justify <laughs> itself to me. And uh, Men, I think, is like an hour forty or something. So it's right in the sweet spot of like quite a tight horror script. So yeah, well worth a try anyway. And you, you, you won't lose three hours of your life. Thank you for that recommendation. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so moving on now. Uh, so some of the some of the questions we, we talked about going over, they're, they're sort of, they, they, they kind of flit in and out of my experiences. Yeah. Uh, because I spent many years with the sketch comedy group Sad Faces, uh, who were friends of mine way back from like school days. And that's really where my education came as a writer and an actor was was doing Edinburgh with those guys, yeah. and um, so I've uh, I spent so many years doing that and it's so fundamental to me. But um, in terms of Edinburgh, it's changed so much that I don't know if I can endorse it or not. 
uh, one of the because uh, this is it's a question about festivals and and comedy festivals especially and you know which ones are good or not and and I think most people would say that uh, McCuntliffe in Wales is the best comedy festival mm-hmm. and uh, I haven't even been <laughs> I need to go but it just feels like every year it comes around and I go oh is it that already oh, I can't go now <laughs> but because um, I'm I'm terrible and lazy but so that's meant to be amazing Vault Festival. It's sort of shut down now, it looks like, or at least it's in limbo trying to find a new home. But I loved Vault Festival. That was incredibly important for me as well. They gave me a lot of opportunities to, to direct plays and also to, to run like my own little season oh, nice. of work Good. And in 2016. And uh, also to do my first comedy hour like by myself, which is called Tom Crowley's Mass. And it was the structure of the Church of England Mass, uh, the High Church Mass, because uh, my father is retired but was a vicar. And um, but repurposed for comedy. So I, it was just an exercise in me going, what would every section of this be in a secular or sort of comedy way? Uh, what would every segment of the mass mean or look like in that way? So uh, hugely important to me. But like Edinburgh, I think, is the most towering, important festival for me. But, you know, uh, since I last went there in 2015, it, it's become even more prescriptive and expensive. So it's hard to know whether that's a good place to send people to go and do a show. I've always said... I'd love to go back to Edinburgh and I and do a show for a whole month, which I think fewer and fewer people are doing because it's so expensive. But I would go back for a whole month and do a show if if two if one of two scenarios. Okay. One, I'm incredibly like household name famous and I know it will sell out. Yeah. Like no question. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'll walk away breaking even or making money. You know. Yeah. Um, which is like a mad fantasy in Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, or two, I would do a free show which was just because I wanted to, and I didn't in my own mind have any expectations of it, if it was just for doing the show. And, I'm, and I've thought about that, and I'm, you know, I'm still considering it. But, um, I mean, but I did also find that live stuff was hugely important. I mean, all, all of, you know, I, I do, as, as uh, we've mentioned already, um, I do a sketch comedy podcast called Crowley Time, uh, available on all good podcatchers and at CrowleyTime.com. <laughs> and uh, I put so much love into that. That's basically what I do instead of doing stand-up. I still do gigs now and then, but... More and more, the focus for me is on making that just because I think it's the best showcase of what I like and what I do. And also it, it allows me to do it in my own way, on my own terms. It also reaches more people than any sort of single stand-up gig that I would do. Yeah. If thousands of people listen to each episode, that means that that's probably about uh, 10 times as many people are, are going to be in any audience of a, of a gig around the country. And, uh, you know, so it, it makes more sense to me. And also the main thing for me about it is I really like striving away like you know obsessively uh laboring over you know a piece of work and then releasing it and then letting it go out there yeah rather than struggling like writing writing and then going on stage performing it taking those lessons going away coming back doing it again again and performing yeah. that say five minutes uh, over and over again and i've done that uh, with different various different sets throughout my career and and i've always found it hard work to, to feel like it's worth going back and doing that same material again and again. Yeah. But if I've got a good idea that I can, uh, you know, hew into its ideal shape and then just put it out there and then go, right, done with that. I'm not going to, you know, trot that material out again. That's done now. That's out there. I find that, obviously, it's an insane amount of work, but I, <laughs> I find it more fulfilling creatively, which is just, like, personal. It's not that one's better than the other. Like I, I love stand-up comedy and the, the art of it, and I respect people that do it so, so much, and especially people who who have the ethic to keep driving to gigs and, and doing that same material and making it just a little bit better every time until it's like bulletproof. I think that's such a, a discipline and, uh, and an amazing skill. And I, I don't know if I've got it. 
<laughs> I don't know if it's in my nature <laughs> or in my preferred way of doing things. But anyway, oh, nice. so that's uh, so fe festival-wise, I think it's always you've got to look out for yourself. I think I think you look out for yourself, your own time, your emotional energy, your, your financial investment in whatever project you're doing. I think all well, that's so important, and I also think that. Know, know what you want when you go in. And if what you want is, uh, I, you know, well, I, I need this to be a giant success and make me famous or I'm going to kill myself, <laughs> then you probably shouldn't go. But uh, if you go, if you can look at yourself and say, I would like one outcome from this, and that might be getting one agent to come and see you yeah. do your show. Yes. Or it might be getting a review that's good. Yes. But also I think the best thing you can do is if you can look at yourself in the, in the eye and go... Uh, and say, if I enjoy doing this show every day and I'm better at doing what I do when it's finished than when I started, and that'll be enough for me, then absolutely. But I think it is, I think I almost unknowingly, I think almost through uh, having managed expectations and like not wanting to get my hopes up too much, I think I discovered that attitude quite early on uh, doing sketch shows in Edinburgh. But I... I never was conscious that that's what I was doing. I just, I just yes. thought like, yeah. oh well, you can't assume you're going to hit it big, so I won't assume that. But looking back, I go, oh, I actually meant that the focus was on making the show good and, and hoping that people came that day. Yes, and that just makes it a much more manageable challenge. I, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I mean, obviously, uh, there's been the um, sadly annual. Um, I've only sold one ticket tweets doing the rounds. Oh, yeah. And there's yeah, been yeah, yeah. some love from other comedians saying it'll get better. But but what was in another interview I did, and I hadn't spotted it, but there were some established names who'd actually only sold sort of one ticket. He's going, so it's not yeah. it's not the curse of the newcomers. It's the, no, whim, no. it's the whim of the people. Like you say, you cannot live or die on that hill that... Because mm. you're there, mm. you're going to sell out. It's it's there's like again, like you've already alluded to. There's so many factors in play, isn't there? Um, yeah, it may, may be a good or not good run, and you. But you say if you can just pick a, a small win, you're probably yeah. a lot healthier, um, mm. a lot better frame of mind. So I think that's a really good lesson for everyone. Actually, don't. It's don't also it's also this is. Oh, totally. No, I think you're right. And obviously it feels terrible if you have a tiny crowd or they don't, or even a big crowd, but they don't like it. You know, like if, they, if they're just not in the mood, they don't laugh. If you can't break that ice and you're working as hard as you can to stay on track, we'll get them, we'll get them, and it doesn't happen. It feels terrible. Of course it does, because you feel like I've really, the, the only reason you've come here is to enjoy this. And the only reason I've bothered bringing this here is so that you will enjoy it. And, and if you fail in that, you know, venture, you go, oh, God, this is bleak. <laughs> But like, but you're only as good as your last gig, aren't you? And so, if the next day you have a packed out house of people that love it, then fine, you're fine. It's 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 all okay. Yes. But um, oh, that made me think of something, and I've, I've totally forgotten what it was now. But um, yeah. Uh, oh, what was I going to say? I was going to say something off the back of what you said about um, uh, only one person being in the crowd. Uh, oh, oh, it's so nearly on the tip of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, oh, this is it. So also. Whenever people ask about like career advice, because I've done a bunch of teaching, I still do, and uh, that's sometimes mentoring people who've you know uh, have sort of particular needs or, or difficult life experiences. I've worked with a couple of companies that uh, works with veterans who are going through oh. creative rehabilitation and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. and hugely valuable work and fantastic people. Most recently, the Starts Award, and if any sort of arts funding bodies are listening, like get behind the Starts Award and Sue Brody because she's a, a saint of a person. Wow. Anyway. Yes. So, yeah, and the difference it makes to people, you can see it, and it's incredibly powerful. 
But when people actually ask me about the next steps beyond making your first thing, like what, where should I go next? I often find myself thinking the most important thing is um, don't have too prescriptive a plan for where you think it's all got to go. Which I guess is a sort of cousin of the point I made earlier about like don't set your expectations too high or, or don't blame yourself if things don't happen. Similarly, you never know when things will happen that you didn't expect. So if you do a show in Edinburgh and you think, from your perspective, you go, I've got no press, people, it's not full every day, people aren't interested. Sure, I had, you know, a few people in every day, and uh, but it doesn't seem like enough. One of those people could have been someone scouting for talent and you didn't know. Yeah. And then years later, you get a call unexpectedly saying, this person wants you to come and be in this Radio 4 show. Yeah. Or whatever, this Audible play or whatever it is. And the reason is they came to see you in the fringe, at the Fringe in 2016 or whatever. <laughs> and you were like, what? You remember that? And they go, yeah, I loved it. I've been talking about it ever since. But your name just didn't come to the forefront of their mind for a while. Yeah. You know, these, these things are unexpected. But also... Uh, 2015 at Edinburgh was a very tough year. Like we did a, a show which I think was our best one, called "Sad Faces Present J.R. Chapter Houses: The Dawn Chorus Brackets a Novel," where the premise was it was like the <laughs> it was the hundredth anniversary plus one year of the start of the First World War, right. and uh, we were uh, cynically adapting a war novel to put on the stage in the hopes of making lots of money, yeah. and, like the ethical <laughs> quandaries that are involved there, yeah. profiting off people's deaths. Yes, and um, so that was the sort of idea. And it was just really tough. It was um, it was quite a tough year, I think, for a lot of people. It really felt like a lot of people going, oh, it's really hard this year. Don't know why that was. Could have been economic downturn. It could have just been something in the air. No idea. But, like, so it's, it was tough. Like, we had a really good run of it. We loved doing the show. But reviews, uh, so difficult to try and get anybody in. Yes. And in terms of that sense of momentum, some people, you know, when we had a good house and a good performance, we thought, great, okay, good, we're, we're adding to our own personal myth. Yes. But, you know, it was at a time in our careers where we were already all doing our own stuff, and it seemed to be going better than trying to make the live act go somewhere. Yeah. So it was a bit guilty until proven innocent. But so I, I always thought of that as being a bit like, oh, it was a tough year, it was a pretty bad year. But I, um, I met for the first time there the woman who is now my wife, Oh. and also Jen and Chris Sugden, who created Victoriosity. Yeah. And that's the first time that I worked with them. So a year that I thought of as financially ruinous and, you know, <laughs> emotionally pretty difficult actually led to two of the best things that have happened to me <laughs> in my life. You know, two, yeah. a wonderful job that I love and two friends I count as very dear friends now and my wife, you know, and so you never know. And But also like a dozen other little connections that were either established or were um, strengthened by it happens, you know, happening upon them or seeing someone else's show in Edinburgh. You never know which of these things that you think are not important at all yeah. will turn out to be incredibly valuable. And so, you know, it's, it's really important to get, again, not necessarily on the live circuit, but, you know, on social media and other communities and getting a podcast out or going and doing the gig circuit, whatever it might be. It's importable. It, it's importable. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, I've been talking too long. That's it's, a um, It's important. <laughs> it's important it's very important <laughs> to uh to stay open to new connections and new experiences and to value the fun stuff about it all the time because you never know what tiny thing that you really took notice of will turn out to be important later totally agree with you um i i think when i was um oh by the way we should say that um crowdy time does have patreon so you know obviously do oh yeah well if anyone oh, listening checks it out they love it yes go to patreon.com forward slash crowley time and uh the, the deal is it's only two dollars or local equivalent i was quite surprised to find out that 
as far as Patreon's concerned. Two dollars is the same as two pounds and the same as two euros, which, as far as I was aware, different currencies. But, but anyway, so I think, I think exchange, excellent. Yeah, well, it must be that. I assume it's all to do with the fees that are involved in in transferring oh, right. the cash. But yeah. like, so it's either two euros, two dollars, or two two um, pounds, or your local equivalent of whatever that is. Uh, per episode and you always get a little bonus something and sometimes it's artwork uh, a little sort of illustration page with extra jokes in it sometimes it's uh, a whole bonus bit of audio uh, like a little ep- a mini episode or something sometimes it's like an interview with someone who I like or whatever but you know you always get a little something extra um, but the main thing you're doing you know as I think is the case with every Patreon is the main thing you're doing is is helping me to keep making the show. So if you like it, that is the most direct way you can support it. I think it's important we got that in there. I thought it was important to give you a nudge there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I I totally agree with you on that point. That I um when I was uh, start or writing up series two of Monson Jackson, um mm. I thought it'd be quite nice to get a wider range of people involved. But obviously, you know, like everyone else, I don't have a big stack of cash to go out and pay people. Um, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just ask people, fully expecting everyone to go, <laughs> no, you know. Um, and amazingly, I did get people. And and the same now we're doing this podcast show that mm. people are so generous with their time. And just just by asking, I'm not saying everyone's said yes, obviously, but but it's just nice that you just ask people. And if they wanted it, they'll say, oh, I'll happily do it. Or I'll work with you. Or you might just forge a connection, like you say, later down the line, there may be something. and. Yeah you know, something may come from it. So it's, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, I don't know what to call it. So just putting it out there in the, in the, in the space, isn't it? You know, Showing your work, I guess. Yeah. That was the, um, the Austin Cleon book, wasn't it? You know, the yeah. designer does like felt pen writing and stuff. Yeah. He, um, he had a couple of really good books about creativity, which are definitely worth anybody who's harbors creative dreams. It's worth them checking them out. One's called, uh, Oh God, what is it? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember the first one. The second one's called show your work. It'll come up, little little square kind of toilet book looking thing uh, by Austin Cleon, K-L-E-O-N. And uh, he, the book Show Your Work is all about essentially having a, a healthy relationship with social media yeah, and about um, getting your stuff seen by people, being, um, being brazen about, you know, making sure that you get your work out there, being confident in the way that you present yourself and, uh, and being regular. So like it's showing something every day. That's one of his lessons is put something up every day. And I don't always manage that, but I always, I very often will just get a little tweet out, just something, whether it's, you know, anything he was saying, it could be a sketch, it could be a photo, it could be a, you know, a, just a, a blog post or just a little observation about something, recommendation. But yeah. his theory was just do something every day. And I think partly that's developing good habits where you always have a little part of your brain that's working on doing something creative. Yes. Yeah. But also it's about keeping in the forefront of people's minds so that when the opportunity does come up and they go, right, we need a really innovative modern screenwriter. Who shall we get? Uh, what was that guy? Andy Case. I saw a tweet from him just today. And then you have, you know. Yeah, you, you don't know. You, the, you, know, know. You. you know. Yeah, you never know. You never know. And uh, there's a couple of um, actors I've I've just sort of pray not i i don't want to make this sound like i'm praising them in the hope that they'll just work with me uh, that sounds all <laughs> just sounds mercenary doesn't it but i genuinely i don't think it's that bad no no but i genuinely love what they do and i just want them to know that because i think there's so much people who just want to sort of get a rabbit punch in or whatever and just make a nasty mm. comment or, or whatever oh yeah I, no, you know, don't just, don't do that that's some more advice for me don't be slagging everyone off yeah. all the time yeah but but also just don't, if you didn't like it just don't mention it just move on yeah don't, don't feel the need to tell them um but if you did like it do tell them because that's that's mm. the sort of the merit of 
all the hours they've put in, all the work they've done to get there, to be picked, to be selected for whatever it is they're in, yeah, you know, yeah. be the one that's cast, et cetera, et cetera, and just reach out and say, I thought you were superb. That's yeah. a lovely thing to say, and, and it's forming those positive bonds, isn't it, across the ether. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I just staggered when I see these people piling in on an actor or a comedian or somebody just sort of saying, oh, you know, various versions of you're awful. It's like, why? Oh, yeah. I don't get, I've never, apart from you hoping you might get a job with one of the right-wing papers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, GB is going to come find you and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you your own show, this, yeah. This is, this is what passes for comedy these days. <laughs> Maybe I could pivot into that and uh, make not very much money and be alienated from everyone I know. <laughs> yeah, everyone you know and love, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, I think um, I saw one uh, just, just the other day, um, Rosie Holt published. Uh, someone was attacking her from GB News, and they and they'd actually yeah, put right. median in um, uh, rabbit quotations. I hate that so much. So it's called always, comedian. It's the first, it's the first <laughs> port of call. There's 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 nothing quite like slagging off comedians for seeing how witless people can be. Because like it's always two things: so called comedian and about as funny as cancer. Every single comedian yeah. who's been like condemned by the tabloids or you know the the right wing commentaria is always those two things. Yeah. And I think if you've ever said that about a comedian, you should be ashamed of yourself because not only are they unfunny comments to make, they've also obviously been made about 400 times. I'm going to guess the first time that those two jokes were made. Uh, it would have to be shortly after the discovery of the concept of cancer. Uh, so I'm going to say uh, whenever that, about three days after they actually identified and classified cancer as a disease, Somewhere. I'm going to say that's when that joke <laughs> was first made. So uh, be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's lazy and it adds nothing to the general pool, but it's... No. I just, I, I just, I don't know, it's beyond me anyway. Um, just watch, <laughs> yeah, no, watch something else, you know. Um, Quite. Anyway, right, right. Sorry. Moving on. No, no problem. Super. So uh in terms of career, now if you could pretend to sketch. So if if I could steal credit wholesale for a sketch uh show or a, a sketch or a, some creative work. Oof, I think um I think I'd have to say one thing I definitely steal is uh, the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, <laughs> which I'm also in quite a lot. I think, in are, fact, as are. we're recording this today, I'm in the one that's just come out. But um, Ben Partridge is is fantastic. He's a brilliant comedy yes. writer and a great performer as well. Uh, I don't think he thinks of himself first and foremost as like a performer, but he's he's made such a fantastic voice for himself out of that show. Yes, and that launched uh, at around the same time as Wooden Overcoats, the podcast sitcom that sort of was my first foray into the sort of contemporary world of podcasting and, and yeah. got me sort of known as someone who acted and, and wrote comedy in that medium. Uh, and he, uh, around that time, I was um, making a little small press newspaper, uh, which was mainly used to promote like stuff I was doing, but also like it had contribute. I, I would pay for the printing and I would invite people to submit artwork and writing and stuff. Yeah. It was really fun. It's called The Paper. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, uh, it was you know, a little work of... Uh, again, labour-intensive ephemera. Now when I do Crowley Time, it lives forever. When I do the paper, you had to physically distribute it. Which is, you know, <laughs> hard to do. But uh, anyway, so he asked if he could put a little ad or a little sample of you know the show, a little bit of writing, in, the, uh, in that thing. And I said, absolutely, yeah, feel free. And we sort of began chatting to each other. We'd met sort of through Edinburgh and uh, Friends of Friends and things many times before, but that's when we first became... 
aware of each other wanting to do the same kind of work. And so he knew that I was doing wooden overcoats. I knew he was doing beef and dairy. And so in quite early on, it's like episode um, four or something, I can't remember. But fairly early on, he, he got me in to play a character on the show. And he has continued to do so ever since, because I think we have got quite a shared sensibility mm. and a shared sense of humour. And I mean, I love it as well. I love it as a podcast, uh, even the ones I'm not in. <laughs> and uh, you know, Generous. Obviously, obviously not, not as much, obviously. Well, but, obviously uh, not. not obviously. They're fine. They're fine. The ones I'm not in. Um, but uh, it was it was being inspired by him and what he did with that show that made me go. Oh, I really should make my own little comic vehicle oh, wow. in podcast. Okay. That's why. Well, that was one of the main things that inspired me to do Crowley Time because I went. Oh yeah, he's he's literally making his own radio comedy show. Uh, you know, at the time I was sort of I was pitching not Crowley time, but very different types of radio comedy, whether it be narrative or like broken comedy uh, sketches and sections and whatever. But I looked at him and I did go, "Oh, you can just have your own." Like you know, since being very young, I've gone. Like, I'd really love to have a you know proper long running radio comedy show, uh, sketches particularly. And then you realise oh, I can. <laughs> but you'd have to make it yourself and so that's like yeah. the bargain I've made with myself ever since but yeah no I would I'd probably pinch I'd probably claim uh, all uh, responsibility and um, inspiration for the Beef and Dairy Network if there were no consequences I'd, I'd nick <laughs> no that's fine no consequences you can have it that's fine <laughs> mm. now in terms of um, being proud of my work oh there's there's so many little moments uh, I think I had a really early moment of uh, this is now I'm I'm spoiled enough that now I'm I'm sort of used to this so to speak in terms of uh, people who I don't know personally in real life liking stuff I've made yes and that obviously since uh, doing wooden overcoats and and then um, doing more stuff digitally so it's reaching more people more quickly yes that's something that has happened a lot more I'm very fortunate in that it's happened more but one of the first real times when I heard somebody. Uh, I, I heard about somebody liking something I'd done. Was I, I did a play, a play I'd written years ago. This is my sort of odd, odd patchwork of a career, but like I did the Royal Court Young Writers Program in um, as a playwright in 2012. Yeah, and um, where I met Felix Trench for the first time, who I then went well, on to yeah. sort of co-develop with Novacoats with. Yeah. So there you go, it all connects. Yes, uh, amazing intake of people as well. Like in that same course, you had Cordelia Lynn, who's gone on to write plays for the Royal Court, the Almeida. The, yeah. I don't know if she's done the national yet, but if not, it'll be soon. And Bisha K. Ali, who went on to create Ms. Marvel for um, for Disney Plus, like yeah. a mad, insanely sort of packed with talent group of people, yeah. and um, so many, so many others as well. I'm uh, too many to name now, but anyway, they they were all amazing. And uh, so anyway, I, for that play, the idea was that by the end of it, you would write a play, and then it would be read and given feedback on by the uh, professional and uh, knowledgeable literary team of the Royal Court. Yeah. And the play I wrote was something I've been thinking about for ages called Ghost City, which, uh, if if that sounds interesting, I'm, of course, still <laughs> looking to develop it in any media uh, that I can get paid for. And I did a, an abridged hour-long version of it at Vault Festival, the aforementioned Vault Festival. Oh, yeah. uh, and it was... I had to cut several sort of subplots and characters. It was like a two-hour play. You see, I'm, I'm a hypocrite because, you know, I only like hour-and-a-half films. <laughs> I'll happily write a two-hour play, Andy. I'm, I'm a complete hypocrite. But uh, at least in a two-hour play, you get an interval. But uh, mm. still, anyway. So Vault only took hour-long shows, but it was such a great opportunity, and a friend of mine had uh, sort of... Uh, helped me put together the pitch application and, and send it in and we got the week-long slot wow. and I put it on there and I put in a bunch of new people to me uh, who are all you know still uh, firm friends and, and much valued um, uh, people in my life 
but also uh, some older friends too. And uh, Felix Trench again was in was in that production, and some friends of mine from university. And one really really brilliant uh, actor and writer, a lady I know called Pippa Caddick, who again is a name to look out for. Um, really quietly a really brilliant writer, mainly focused on being an actor, but was also a fantastic playwright. And yeah. Yeah, she she's great. She'll she'll do loads. Um, Pippa Caddick. Anyway, so we did a performance of this play. And I still really rate it. It's about, it's a sort of slightly, again, mentioning Scanner Darkly earlier, it's a bit Philip K. Dick inspired, but oh, wow. it's about a, an art project that some powerful government is putting together to sort of appear to be uh, affluent and successful, even though the country itself is not like that. So, like, you know, you could, it was sort of inspired by the London Olympics and then the London mm-hmm. riots as well. It was also inspired by the Chinese ghost cities that had been spotted by Google Maps, like empty, these giant urban developments yeah. that had no one in them, yeah. which I think is an amazing story if you want to look that up. It's brilliant. But so this was like, I, I deliberately gave all the characters names that were sort of interpretable as potentially being from somewhere else. Like, Felix played a character called, a politician called Harlan Lift. And um, there was Lionel Jostifer, and uh, the main character was called Causeway Joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to try and suggest that this was a slightly any country place, yeah. and it wouldn't feel odd if you produced it in India or China or wherever. You know, like uh, it, it would, would still feel like these were all um, sort of other, a slightly other world. But uh, so anyway, I, I wrote this thing, and the idea is that the the, the city in question uh, actually has sightings of what appear to be actual ghosts, as well as being a ghost city, a sort of empty city that's a sort of show city, a model city. It's also um, becoming actually haunted. And, uh, yeah, so it's very lofty. It's very lofty stuff. Anyway. It's very, um, very <laughs> it arch and very uh, philosophical, actually. Uh, it's extremely clever. Um, but so we put this on, and I really liked it. The cast were lovely about it. I've had a lot of nice feedback on it over the years and readings and things. But the thing that really made me happy was that Pippa Caddick in the cast uh, had gone out after being in a, in a performance of it Right away afterwards, as we were sort of taking the set down uh, for the day, she went out to get coffee. And on the way back, um, she she heard a guy on the phone who didn't spot her. He just was on on the phone. Uh, And he said to who knows who, uh, to someone on the other end of that line, he just went, I've just seen this really brilliant play about construction. And, you know, um, can't 100% say with certainty that it was that one, but I don't think there were any other plays about the construction industry (laughs) that were on in that time slot at Vault Festival that year. But... um, so that just that, just somebody spontaneously saying, it really stays with me as a moment where it's like, ah, oh, I'm not imagining it. This is good. Yeah, <laughs> this is actually good. Yeah. Someone liked it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, there you go. There's, there's one of the um, times I've been lucky that's enough lovely. to have that. Happen. That is lovely. Yeah. And, um, that, yeah. So on the flip side of that, times I could have curled up and uh, died. So... Again, Edinburgh. Edinburgh is a, a total patchwork. I'll actually give you another proud moment and another um, uh, and a shameful moment to try and round things off. I'll give you one more moment of, of happiness and one more moment of uh, misery. So, one year, I think this was, yeah, this was the same year, in fact. Uh, we, we, Sad Faces took our show to, it was called Sad Faces Through a Party uh, and another narrative sort of comedy thing. And we, we went to uh, the Pleasance courtyard with this show in edinburgh and i was exit flyering which is to say handing out flyers to an audience leaving a show i was exit flyering something i forget what and um if you've been to edinburgh you'll know that the pleasance venues will plaster the posters for every show they've got on uh, haphazardly all over the walls of their venues so you know you'll if you look anywhere on this wall you'll see some show yeah that might be of interest yeah. and i was standing there holding these flyers and a family 
Uh, I seem, I think it was like one kid, a little girl, and a uh, sort of middle-aged mum and dad came down the stairs uh, from this show that I'd also just been to see. And they didn't look at me, but they looked right above my head where there was a poster for our show. And before spotting me, the dad said, look, sad faces. We loved them last year, didn't we? And I got oh. to go, hello, and hand them a fly. I don't know if they ever turned up to our show that year, but still, that was an anonymous thing. And the very same year, there was a horrible moment where um, we... Um, oh, yeah, we, we also... We always had badges, like, like so many shows do. We had badges that we gave out to the audience that had seen us and uh, also little bits of supplementary material, like a little sort of program almost with extra jokes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, little giveaways to thank people for coming to the show. Yeah. And what we would always do is go stand in the stairwell from the Pleasant's attic where we were doing the show and uh, hand, you know, stand in the corners of the stairs so as not to get in the way and hand these out to people as they came past. So uh, we, Toby, another member of the group, and I, uh, we left the show having done the show. And it was a really good day too. It was really fun. And um, uh, I think I had noticed maybe like one person step out during the show and I thought, oh, they're going to the toilet or something. And um, so we, we went into the stairwell, stood there, and the audience started filing out. But we, as we were standing there, there was a lady stood next to us who I assumed was waiting for the next show. So I said, oh, the queue's just downstairs for the next show, and she didn't yeah. say anything. But, you know, I was, you know, what I was trying to not say too forcefully was, no, the venue staff will be annoyed if you don't leave because we have to let people out. <laughs> and uh, so I went, sorry, sorry, no, um, we, uh, you have to wait downstairs because there's people coming through. And she said, like, I'm, I'm waiting for my friend uh, or something. And uh, no. she said, I was, I was in the show. I, I, I stepped out. And uh, I think, I can't remember which of us, me or Toby, said this, but one of us said... Um, Oh, well, did you, if you'd popped out to the loo or something, you could have always come back in. That'd be fine. And she said, uh, Oh, no, I just wasn't enjoying your performance. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, oh, that's blood. <laughs> and I'll always be proud of Toby for what he said, which was, Wow, that would have been so easy not to say. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, great. That was um, sort of enraging, sort of shameful, and sort of miserable at the same time. But yeah, it was uh, uh, always ups and downs. That's is the message unnecessarily? <laughs> I know. That's that thing where if you if you hate comedy, you get angrier about it than <laughs> if you hate most anything else. So it's not funny. <laughs> you know, so the, wow. the opportunity to tell the young hopefuls that they were shit was too much for her to <laughs> resist. Oh, bloody hell. Terrible. Oh, what, a, what a horrible woman. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know who she was. I'll never see her again. So in terms of new up-and-coming comedians and, and writers and other people that do the same stuff as me, uh, if I could offer them any advice to increase their chances of success and reduce their suffering, I think a couple of things I've already said are really key. One is don't set too much of a prescriptive five-year plan for yourself. For some people, I think having those goals is helpful, but the trouble is it's such an unpredictable and, and fast-moving and changeable industry, anything in entertainment, especially in Britain, that it's very difficult to set any of those targets and realistically believe they'll happen. So I think be prepared to take the unexpected job, or you know, if you think your one big sitcom idea or whatever it might be, movie idea, film idea, uh, uh, TV show, drama, whatever, if you think that's the thing, that is the thing that is your real like best idea, and you think ultimately, yeah, I'll I'll try writing other stuff, but this is the real one. You know, if that gets knocked back too many times, the best thing you can do is let it go, like because that. also it's always there, it's always in the back pocket. I think it's always good to be moving forward. I think you need to make the most of everything you've got because there's so much working for free in this business. So every time you write a spec script or a, a pitch, a pilot for a show, whatever, then you you know you should make the most use of it. But it's not going anywhere. Like it's still in a file somewhere on your computer. 
So hang on to it, but don't don't hang all your hopes on the one idea, the one script, the one pitch. Because quite often, you know, you go in, you've got this one idea that everyone absolutely loves, uh, that, that you know, that you've spoken to already. Everyone, your friends, colleagues, contemporaries, they say, that's great. You go in, the uh, producer says, oh, your writing's fantastic. Um, we're already doing a film very similar to this. What else have you got? So if you've only been spending all that time thinking about that, oh, then you've got nothing else. So, you know, whenever inspiration strikes, just write it down somehow. That's another really top tip I always give people whenever it comes to, like, courses, mentoring, whatever, is have some way of taking down notes all the time. Uh, these days, I use my phone. I use Google Keep, the note-taking app, because I find that the way that sort of breaks down adding notes in different categories, I find that most helpful. Uh, but it could be a little notebook. I had a little tiny notebook I'd carry around with me all the time for many, many years, uh, just because that one little idea. And if you're feeling stuck, like you go, oh, I don't know what to do next, then have a little flick through that book or, or through those notes, because quite often you find that brilliant idea that you thought of and you went, oh, I'll de next week I'll definitely get on with this. And you forgot about it completely because other pressures got in the way. It always happens. So take notes down. Always have a way, you know, don't, don't make it so that you've got to get home uh, open the drawer, find the pen in the other drawer, uh, and then put the new ink cartridge in so until oh, wow. before you can take the note down. Don't don't let make it like that. Make it that you've always got a pen and paper or a notebook or a notes app or something yeah. because you need to be able to write those ideas down. Absolutely. Partly because it's it's never a bad thing to have like too many ideas and too many things you'd love to make. So, so there's one. Thank you. So if, yeah. if you were playing evil, Tom, then the one yeah. thing you would not tell people is to only have one idea and to just keep going and going and going, regardless of the lack of feedback. <laughs> That's it. And I mean, but the other thing, a cousin to that point is if you if you write to a producer and uh, they don't get back to you, uh, it's nothing to do with you. Like I said earlier, like the idea that you, you go, oh, it would have been made if it was any good. And it's like, no, no, it can be the best thing ever written. It could be it could be a show that in a parallel universe was now the biggest money spinner that Sky or the BBC's ever put out. Yeah. It could be the new Stranger Things, whatever. Like, yeah. But until it's made, you can't prove that either way. Yes. If you send an email to a producer and they don't get back to you for a year, it doesn't mean they don't like what you do. It doesn't mean they're not interested from hearing from you. It just means that on the day they saw that email come in, they were doing something else. Yes, 100%. Or they weren't doing something else, but they knew they had to get on with something else later that day, and they went, oh, I'll read that later, and they forgot. Yes. So, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to get into details sometimes with people, and it really is a case-by-case -case thing, but let's say you've, you've met at an event or something, a TV producer, and they say, your idea sounds good, send me the script, and you do, and they don't get back to you. Mm -hmm. There's a million reasons that might be, and they might get back to you two weeks later, three weeks later, whatever. After, say, a month, maybe... You could send a little follow-up email just saying, oh, just checking if, if, if this email came through okay. Uh, have you had a chance to look at this? If not, totally understand. Then if there's another month goes by without any response, probably best to leave it for a bit. After six months, maybe send another little nudge. But like we're talking about months and even years. You know, I've had this as well. My wife is also, like I said, she's a comedian, writer. She's also had situations where people have got back after... You know, often it'll be unexpected stuff. Like uh, if she's Facebook friends with a producer or something uh, and she mentions, uh, oh, God, I've just had this thing happen, to, uh, you know, this good career move or yeah, yeah. Oh, I've, I'm appearing in this thing or, or, oh, God, I'm really trying to get this script out to people. Anyone know anyone? Then they'll suddenly, that producer will, that hasn't got back to them will suddenly go, uh, uh, will, will suddenly go, oh, you, you emailed me. I didn't get back to you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, and then you know, in the, and sometimes they'll get back to you in the short term, and then not get back to you again. Yeah. It happens all the time. It's yes. endemic in the industry, and I do, I do think it's a problem because I think it really damages the sort of mental health and self worth, self worth of 
of so many people like that I know, you know, personally. Yeah. But um, but at the same time, I think you've just got to kind of remember that in the same way that there's no, there's not necessarily any logic behind why your thing did or didn't get made. It's also, there's there's not necessarily any malice or, or decision-making at play if someone didn't get back to you. Yeah. Don't waste your entire life like pinning all your hopes on the one script and the one person. But don't also don't take it personally if they if they take years and years and years to even acknowledge what you've 100%. said. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, still, it's tough. Yeah. But so that's that's one thing. That's another good tip. Uh, and yeah, I think that's about all the basics that I usually would say. Yeah, let's let's say that's it. There's your top tips. No, they're brilliant. Thank you for those. Very generous. That's all right. So outside of comedy, um, what what else would you enjoy doing? I suppose. Yeah, well, as I've said, I'm an illustrator and a cartoonist as well. Yeah. And like when I when I was a child, I think that was my dream was to be able to write, you know, uh, to draw and write a funny cartoon. Like I loved Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side. Oh, yeah. I still do. Yeah. And uh, the idea of being able to do that sort of thing, where once a day or once a week or whatever, you were paid paid money <laughs> to build a little world out of little boxes and drawings, yeah. uh, was such a dream. And um, Really, it was just that, it, that the performing and writing took over more. I still do commissions and you know design posters for people and illustrations for personal you know presents and stuff sometimes. But and I draw all of the. Um, I actually this was a secret for as long as the show was running. But I drew all of the illustrations for wooden overcoats. Oh wow! But um, the conceit was that that was Madeline the Mouse who drew those. Yes, of course. So I kept quiet about, <laughs> about the fact that it was me until it was over. Then it seemed fair, like yeah, fine, just you know blow that. Oh, really. congratulations! But also, I, I missed that. that oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. Obviously, I'd like to stress, I didn't think it was Madeline the Mouse. It was actually just to be very clear on that. Point. You just believed in the magic, Andy. I understand. I should also credit Felix Trench, who is also himself a great uh, graphic designer, and he did most of the color work for all of those oh, uh, illustrations. Nice. So often, the color he'll have a vision for a color scheme of like, what's the color scheme of this series? Yeah. And then that will inform all the promotional artwork. So often, the color pen and ink was me, and the color stuff was him. Um, so I'm going to say, yeah, being a comics artist or uh, illustrator or a full-time cartoonist, that would be uh, the alternate path for me. Nice. Nice answer. Kind of cheating because it's still creative and, and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I sort of do do it now. But um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be that before it's going to be like uh, accountant. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's fair enough. Absolutely, yeah. So last question. What is, what is the one question you want to be asked that no one ever thinks to ask you? So I think this is, uh, I guess it would be, and this is maybe not the spirit of the question, but something I wish happened more often is, well, as we've talked about a lot, like producers, commissioners, the the, the gatekeepers, basically, of like yeah, the, yeah. proper broadcasters and, and the big institutions um, in entertainment, they are so over inundated with people all the time, and you know, which I think everyone needs to remember, and I think I always struggle to remind myself of. Yes. But something that when, something that is a shame is when you get into a room with a producer and it becomes clear straight away that they're just not on your wavelength, that they're not mm -hmm. interested in 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 what you do, or that you, they they're very, you know, the worst I've had is active suspicion. I think quite a few people would <laughs> would say they've got stories of going to a room with someone and them going like, "Who are you? Like, why am I having this meeting with you?" Yeah. And I I had one I won't say with who where it was like. It couldn't have been clearer that this person didn't really know who I was. Oh, had been sort of browbeaten into having the meeting with uh, <laughs> someone who worked for them, who liked me, uh, but hadn't really had the time or, or the will to to kind of look in very carefully to what I did. To the point where, you know, they literally brought with them uh, a printed off one sheet of information about Crowley time with a little uh, show image from the podcast feed oh. and the blurb mm -hmm. and like 
some text from, I think, like an email I'd written describing what it was. Oh, no. And she had that with her. And I said, um, and, and I was talking about pitches for, because this, this, this place was mainly doing sort of narrative scripts and things, so it was oh, less yeah. sketches. So I'd come with some, I think, pretty, still pretty good ideas for series that could be done. Yeah. And uh, she said, mm, mm, but you don't do that. You do this. And, you know, and I, I sort of want to go, if you'd Googled me, you'd probably have seen that I've done quite a lot of, you know, mainly uh, yeah. I've done scripted, you know, narrative pieces. But OK, so I, I tried to make it as ever. You try and make it into a positive experience. But, you know, I never heard from that person again. I don't think I ever will. But that those things happen. And, you know, the person who had, had got me in that meeting, who did like what I did, still still a friend still a useful professional contact and now you know uh, higher up in the producing food chain so you know that good things came out of that too it was just yeah. that, that one particular meeting just was really disheartening and so the question i would think i wish i was asked more often is um well what what do you want to do like what do you want to make yeah and i think it's that's a question from you know the people with the power to pay you or provide you with the means the equipment whatever the time to make something and if you say, I want to make this, and they say in return, ah, we've already got something like that in development, or they say, oh, we don't really make that, or there's no demand for that. What I wish that, the question I really wish that came next was like, well, what version of that can we come up with that will fit our brief? Or, you know, because I think that one problem is that Tina Fey, when she was running the Saturday Night Live writer's room, yeah. she was asked... How did you, you know, it was such a golden age for the show. Mm. How did you make that show so funny? What did you do in the writer's room? How did you run it that made it so successful? Mm. And she said, I hired the funniest people I could find, then I got out of their way. Yeah. And that's like utopian. Like, obviously, there are mm. network issues. There are notes from producers and notes from commissioners and executives and whatever. Mm. You've got to field those things as a head writer, as a producer, whatever. Like you, mm. There's all these other pressures that a writer doesn't see. However, that attitude was is such a kind of positive one, and it works. You know, you watch the the, the sketch from the time when she was there, and they're not all a hit, but there's such vivid, like vivid voices and and kind of f weird, funny ideas that maybe wouldn't have worked if they hadn't been given, as you said earlier, that sort of space to breathe and that time. Yes. And I, all I wish is that rather than it being like, "What have you got?" and you say this, and they go, "No, don't like that." <laughs> I wish instead it was a bit more like, "Well, what 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 are you good at? You know, what what do you, what are you good at doing?" And, you know, if we let's not so much go, what is the finished product that you can just present us with Yeah. that we can take partial credit for and that will lead to us winning an award? Yeah. If instead they said, what is it you really want to do? Yes. You pitch them your first idea, second idea, third idea. You know, if, if there's not one that they go, yeah, that sounds really cool. If that doesn't come, then maybe a conversation like, well, what we're really looking for is this. Can you think of anything like that yeah. that might be do you have any ideas along those lines that might suit and sometimes pr people have asked me that and it's always the relationships that carry on like the best example i can think of is david tyler who's a genius of radio comedy production he's mm. um he produced uh, cabin pressure mm. and uh, he also in television he produced uh, dinner ladies and mm. you know victoria woods sitcom and a real industry veteran and a brilliant producer he's done yeah. so many great things um uh, all over Radio 4 particularly, mainly radio producing these days. But we've we've never got a show away, but whenever I have an idea for a radio thing, I go to him first because he's honest, doesn't bullshit you. He doesn't say, yeah, no, it's, it's so great, but like, we just, you know, it's, it, you know how the way the industry is now. He'll say, I once I gave him an idea and he said to me, oh, it's, it's very funny and the specific stuff you've written in here is great. Uh, 
but it's the kind of premise I think in my the issue with what I'd submitted to him was like it was a bit inside number nine like it was a comedy right. anthology horror type thing yeah. for the radio and he said well if Jennifer Saunders brought them this idea they would say yes but they'd say yes with a sigh <laughs> so he was saying you've got to kind of already be really famous and they'd probably take it but they wouldn't like it you know because he's got enough experience and wisdom to know what like the people that, that... in charge yeah. are going to yeah agreed and like, I'd rather that than spend months pussyfooting around trying to create a version you know which has no hope like so honesty but also like he'll he'll go if he likes an idea but isn't totally convinced he'll tell you and he'll tell you what he needs to see to, to believe in it he'll also go isn't the funniest thing about this idea this and then you go oh yeah he's right and then you take it away and you the first thing we worked on together was a very simple premise but it was just it fundamentally had a kind of a slightly missed central beat like a central point that he identified instantaneously you know and uh working on developing that with him i learned a lot and it was also a really lovely experience because he's funny he loves comedy and he's really keen to work with talent and new talent as well and he, so yeah he's no, honest, david tyler strongly recommended honest without being brutal should we say well, yeah, I mean, true. I mean, sometimes it is brutal, but as long as it's done, as long as it's not done in a way that's designed to, to discourage you, but rather it's done in a way to help you find your way forward to yeah. getting something made. Yeah, I, you know? just very quickly, I had a call yeah. um, with a producer, um, in a film studio producer, and I I assumed they must like the script because they'd asked me to come on this call. Yeah. And then, and I had my second, third, fourth backup ideas ready to go and all that normal stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I kind of assumed that I was, it was, we're not going to be playing Sandy, but I did kind of think, well, they obviously liked it because they've asked me to join a call and it's like, oh, happy day. Yeah. And then the, the call, the entirety of the call very much felt like they really needed to vent some anger or something on someone. There's a spleen, yeah. <laughs> and, and they just, Don't ever call us again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they just, they just basically, it, was, it just felt like, and that might be me being oversensitive, I know, but it just felt like an endless assault of me justifying what I'd written and why was that yeah. like, why was that in there and blah, blah, and why, you know, why wasn't it doing this and why didn't I follow this standard convention? It's just like, but but you asked me to join this call. Mm, I thought yeah, yeah. I, I think sometimes that kind of, you know, it depends on the way it's phrased as well. I, th I think often people forget that you have to stress the positive. Like th there's, I think, a slightly fetishized yeah. idea in, I mean, and I'm talking about giving friends feedback here not even like professional feedback yeah. but like there's a there's a fetishized idea of like being able to take the hard criticism yes but you know but why on earth would it be productive to be an arsehole about it i don't yeah. get it like you know if you if someone's shared with you their heart and soul and you you don't like it very much what benefit is there to saying tell you what man pu this stinks <laughs> like you don't do that you go oh you know what i really hoped it would be is this and it yeah. wasn't that but what I did like was this bit, because there's always some positive, you know, and there's always yeah. something. I mean, and if there's not, there's probably bigger problems with this writer. <laughs> and maybe you need to gently have that conversation. But, but that, that, is, that is what I thought it was going to be, was we, we liked the, the I don't know, the core of the idea. However, there's something yeah. you're going to have to work on or you, or this won't translate to the US market or whatever it was, mm. you know. That's what I thought the call was going to be sort of tailored like in my head, not just yeah. a, I've had a really bad weekend. I need to beat someone. On a call, I need to kick somebody for a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it was just. I mean, it taught me a lot um, about being prepared because I, I, I wouldn't say I went on the call relaxed because I was all hyped up about being on this call. Mm. But, 
Yeah. I certainly wasn't ready for that onslaught. It's like, God, what have I done to assault your family? What did I? Yeah, do? I know, I know. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't write. You know, uh, producer James McAllister is a dick in the script. So why are you attacking? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't write that in the script. So why are you coming at me like I did? Yeah, yeah, just it was just incredible. incredible. I think I think it's a good. That's a good also note for aspiring people is if you. It's so helpful to have a team of trusted people. I mean, a a pilot script I wrote recently, the feedback from friends, including actually the aforementioned Chris and Jen Sugden and Pippa Caddick, all these people I've come to know over the years, was so helpful and made it you know just that bit better where I go ah yeah it's really like the nuts and bolts of this are tight, like so even if people. Ignore it, hate it, whatever. At least I can go. I made this like as good yes. as I could. Like I made this yes. the best sellable version it can be. And whenever I'm giving people like that feedback, or I'm getting it from them, you always stress the positive as well because you learn as much from being told what is working as, as about what isn't. So if you're sending somebody feedback and it's just like not funny, didn't like this, that character's boring, you know, like you're, you're going to make you're going to sort of depress somebody into inaction, and you don't want that. You want to go. You know, and, and you know, on the flip side of it, if someone has given you notes that you think are a bit brutal, I think the two bits of advice I have are read them and then take a step away from it for a bit, give it a week, and then, you know, reread them and with the benefit of like having the time to process that it was harsher yeah. than you thought it might be, yeah. then look at it again and see what good stuff you can take from it. And yes. the second bit of advice is uh, you don't have to take all of it. If you disagree with someone who's given you feedback, yeah, not everybody is inherently more right than you about what you're writing. <laughs> and it might feel like that. It might feel like, well, if they interpreted it that way, then I've messed that up. But if somebody, yes. you know, if there is a swathe of opinion, like if, if everyone has said the first 10 minutes really drags, then, oh, there might be a point in that. And rather yeah. than thinking, oh, it's boring, the script's boring, I failed, you have to think, okay, people are finding that first section dragging. Can I trim it down? Can I introduce a more exciting element? Maybe the information that's in that first 10 minutes should be conveyed a different way. You find the note within that note, but you don't have to use... Every, if, if one person said to you, I love that character, another person said, I hate that character, um, sorry, it's up to you. <laughs> you have to decide who you think is right yeah. and whether you think they should stay or not. And that's and that kind of decision-making is 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 the whole job, basically, of being a writer. Making decisions yeah. and like expressing those decisions you know, as with as much conviction as you can. I, I totally agree, and I, I think it just nudged a memory of when, uh, not so much now, I don't think, but certainly there were shows when uh, Netflix first sort of came to be the top of the bill for a time, yeah. where I seem to remember endless people saying, oh, you have to get past episode one. And yeah, then yeah, it yeah. really starts working <laughs> It's like, but if everyone is saying, well, not everyone, but if lots of people are saying this, wasn't there a discussion at some point before they released it going, not really sure episode one works? Should should we just skip episode one and just right. crack straight into episode two? And I suspect I that when that thing happens, half the time it's because people have gone, somebody's gone, oh, we, we love this idea, they can do whatever they want. And Netflix, I think, were famous at that time. This has changed since then. But they were famous for basically going, yep, we like it. Here's millions of dollars, go away and make it. And not getting involved creatively. And I think that yeah. has very much changed in <laughs> recent years, yeah. given yeah. you know yes. uh, the uh, the extra pressures they've found themselves under. But anyway, they've changed the way they do business a lot, as I understand it. But that that was the thing. So I think sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's going. It's it's getting the best people and getting out of their way, and that doesn't always work. Um, yeah. But I think sometimes it's also that there was like a lengthy note giving and receiving and redrafting process, <laughs> where <laughs> enough of the bad decisions got through. Slip through yeah. the net and then meant yeah. that, you know, enough people to form a kind of consensus when 
ah, this isn't very good. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> not sure about this now. And then everyone goes, no, 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 stick with it, stick with it. Plus also, all this stuff, creativity, there are good rules of thumb. It's all subjective. You can make yes. a film that follows every single plot beat uh, that you're meant to feature in a film, and it can feel really generic and uninteresting. You can also do a film which totally breaks every single rule in the rule book, and uh, it can also be really boring. Or it can, you know, that can be the beauty of it. But, uh, that's the thing is, there's there's no there's no empirical truth, and there's no guarantees in <laughs> no, in this business. I think that's a great way to end as well. Thanks, okay. Tom. I think <laughs> well, lovely chat. Thank you, Andy. No, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. So uh, that's. A- that's a big thank you to Tom for that interview. If you'd like to know more, there will be links in the show notes. This has been an original podcast for Lightmotif Productions.